Time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Wednesday, January 21st, 2009. Got a good program lined up today. Good listener email. Man, I want to let everyone know. I read every email that comes in, but I don't have the ability to respond to all of them. So please keep those emails coming in. We've got some good listener email today. Uh, You're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and my name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. This is the program that could cause you to have a couple of reactions. Uh, Reaction number one, it could cause you to have a supreme dissatisfaction with the current church that you are attending. Why would it do that? Well... Because if you listen to this program for any length of time, and you attend one of those watered-down, seeker-sensitive churches that gives uh, unbelievers what they want to hear, then uh, this show is going to, uh, this program is going to make it so that you become dissatisfied with your pastors, and you're going to realize just how badly you're starving for the Word of God and to hear the gospel applied to you personally. Yes, you, 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 a Christian. What a profound idea. You as a Christian hear the gospel? You as a Christian hear that Christ has forgiven you of your sins? Yes, that's what we're advocating here. That's what we're promoting here. Why? Well, because uh, the Apostle Paul... Um, let's see, we'll start with the Apostle Paul. And in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians says that I chose to know nothing among you, Corinthian church, church, except for Christ and him crucified. And Jesus calls us to abide in him and to preach him, and to exalt him instead of ourselves. And that's kind of the problem with these seeker-sensitive churches and these legalistic churches is it's all about you, 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 and the things you don't do, and the things you've got to do, and the, and the things you should do, and, 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 and the 12 easy steps to doing the things that you should be doing and, yeah, instead of what Christ has done. The other response, by the way, is you might become very satisfied with your pastor. You might have thought, you know, I've been going to one of these small churches, and it might be a Lutheran church. It might be just a small confessional reformation, a reformed church. It might be uh, even a confessing Baptist church. You know, small, small church with a pastor who faithfully brings you God's word. Sunday after Sunday actually understands that their job is to be an under-shepherd of the great shepherd Jesus Christ and to bring you God's word and to feed you Christ and him crucified every single Sunday. Yes, for even you believers. And if that's the case, you might become supremely satisfied with a church that you might have thought was just no big deal. But see, the thing is, is that Jesus is the big deal. And if your pastor isn't bringing you Jesus, then I have no idea what he thinks he's supposed to be doing because he's not doing what the scriptures tell him to do. Anyway, for today's program, uh, we've got a listener email. We've got uh, (laughs) Stephen Furtick. Um, Yeah. Um, Stephen Furtick uh, from Elevation Church there in Charlotte. Um, He's going in, in, in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's uh, going to uh, be preaching a sermon series called The Purple People Purple People Leader. We'll talk about that. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about what the purpose of signs and wonders is. We're going to continue with our 
or just a simple reading, simple, ex, you know, just a simple reading of the Gospel of Mark. And then uh, we got uh, something from John Piper. John Piper is weighed in on his blog regarding Obama and his uh, support for homosexual people like uh, Gene Robinson. And and just to cap things off, we'll actually listen to uh, part of a sermon from that uh, John Piper preached. Um, why is it that today's program, it seems like I've got all kinds of tongue twisters in here. Let's see, John Piper on being pro-life. Uh, and then we've got uh, the Purple People Leader. Uh, believe me, this is... <clears throat> This is uh, linguistically challenging for me today. Anyway, at the uh, tail end of our program today, we're going to be listening to a sermon that John Piper preached. Uh, there it is again. John Piper preached back uh, when Bill Clinton ascended to the presidency. And the name of the sermon is on being pro-life under a pro-choice president. And um, although Piper preached this passionately uh, back when Bill Clinton was... Uh, uh, ascended to the presidency, it applies today because we Christians, well, um, uh, we're right now, we have a pro-abortion president, Barack Obama, and I think that this message uh, applies to us today now, so I thought these, this would be good to review. Without any further ado then, let's dive into our listener email. I got an email from Mark, actually Mark left this as a comment over at fightingforthefaith.com. And uh, remember, we did the sermon on the quantum of salt, quantum of solace, the James Bond sermon that uh, turned out to be probably the girliest of sermons that I've ever heard in my life. It was a group therapy session delivered by uh, uh, life coach Carrie Shook. Can't call him a pastor. And uh, it, it was delivered at Therapy of the Woodlands there in the northern part of Houston, kind of the... Uh, the uh, high rent district in the, in Houston there. And Mark writes, he says, uh, all that talk about men needing adventure and having an arch enemy who wants to destroy your dreams and being wounded uh, comes from a book called Wild at Heart, written by John Eldridge. Really, Wild at Heart, which kind of picks up on one of our themes that we're going to talk about today. Um, if that's really the source of this talk about having an arch enemy who wants to destroy your dreams, which, by the way, is a completely ludicrous thing to say, at least for a pastor to say, uh, because pastors are supposed to be bringing us Christ and supposed to be bringing us his word, this kind of brings up the problem. Folks, I want you, when you're listening to the sermons, to ask yourself, what is this pastor's source for the things that he's saying? Now, will give a little bit of leeway for pastors to bring in a sermon illustration if the illustration helps you understand better the text that's being taught. But um, there was no text. There's no text in Scripture that says that Satan, our arch enemy, wants to destroy our dreams. Okay? Uh, there is no text. There's, there's not one that I'm aware of. But maybe I'm wrong. If there is, send me an email. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com and let me know which uh, passage of Scripture from the Bible, not the Bahá'í Gita, the Book of Mormon, or anything like that, says that Satan wants to uh, destroy our dreams. Okay? So, in other words, if, if Mark is right, then what Carrie Shook was... I don't want to say preaching, what uh, what he was teaching about, what he was bringing in, what, it wasn't even God's word, it was some information from a book that some guy wrote. And why should we be getting information like that in a church? 
Anyway, Mark continues. He says, it's really, it's a really dangerous book because it makes men feel like they should be out killing deer with their bare hands and being manly men. <laughs> killing deer with your bare hands. Any of you guys ever done that? I've, you know, living in the cubicle world that I live in, um, I've never killed a deer with my bare hands. Anyways, it says, going to work in an office and sitting under fluorescent lights every day in a temperature-controlled environment isn't manly enough. Well, yeah, folks, if you're serving your neighbor through your vocation and that vocation has you sitting in a cubicle, well, you're serving your neighbor through your job. Praise God, that's manly enough. Anyway... Good comment. Thank you, Mark, for the comment there on Carrie Shook and for helping us understand where Carrie Shook was getting this information at his group therapy session that we reviewed. Uh, Lori, um, uh, you know what? Let me uh, let me go to Ben Mordecai's. Ben Mordecai sent me an email. By the way, young Ben Mordecai, great great young man who is uh, struggling to learn and really endeavoring to learn how to properly divide God's word. He sent me a sent me a sermon, if you can call it that. It was a sermon or a little homily that he had the ability to preach. It sounded like it was to a youth gathering. And he did a very decent job of focusing on the text and bringing Christ out. And just a great young man. Anyway, he says, Hey, Senor Rosendopper. <laughs> Here's his question. From the... This is the name of the email is Sin Cycle or the Christian Life. He says, from observation of my Christian walk, I notice what seems to be a cycle uh, for Christians. Uh, the cycle begins by becoming aware of sin, then becoming upset about sin. Actually, I would uh, I would say probably a better way to is not upset but contrite. You you realize that uh, what you're doing is wrong and sinful. He says, uh, and then you turn to God in faith in Christ according to the Gospels. You cry for help. Uh, be totally and 100% forgiven or assured of your forgiveness. And then what happens is, is that you become more successful at fighting against that sin. And then you start to feel like maybe you got it all together, that things are, are going right. And then you get the floor pulled out from under you and <laughs> you see more sin exposed. Uh, ben, welcome to the Christian life. I think that is a great way of describing what we all go through. Um, sanctification is a painful process and I, although i don't have the passage to support it i i kind of get that there's a passage that is there that does support this concept that the holy spirit graciously doesn't doesn't allow us to feel the full weight of how wretched we are um because believe me if if we could really truly understand the gravity and the blackness and the darkness of our hearts i, I think that uh, we might die under the crushing guilt that is associated with it. And so what happens is, is that the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the law, done lawfully, okay, the, when you preach the law lawfully, it's to convict, one of the things it does is it convicts you of your sin, nails you to the wall and shows you your need for a savior. So what happens is, is that you, you've got somebody preaching about your sin, you become aware of it, the Holy Spirit really convicts you of it. Um, it, you become contrite. There's a contrition that comes along with it. And then where do you go with that? Now, you don't want to leave somebody. You don't want to just rail against sin and, and, uh, and in, in such a way that you leave somebody uh, without any hope or to somehow solve the problem themselves. I mean, what a miserable state that would be. Um, you you got to preach the gospel when you preach the law lawfully. And so you, you hear the 
assuring and comforting words that Christ died for your sins and that you are forgiven in Christ for that. And as a result of it, yeah, you do become more aware of that sin. And it's I, even in my own life over the course of my Christian journey, I've there are certain sins that uh, that seems to be more or less stuff that's in my past, not something I'm struggling with in the present. But the problem is, is that uh, you get to that point where you feel like, wow, dude, I'm pulling it off. And it's at that point that, um, as Mordecai Ben writes here, absolutely, it's like you get the carpet pulled out from under you and uh, you're back on your face and you realize just how wretched and sinful you are. Um, in other words, the the entire Christian life is a life of repentance daily taking up your cross denying yourself and following jesus and so from a sanctification point of view um if you're looking from if you're looking at it from your perspective about your life um it's highly likely that if you are growing in your understanding of god's law and its demands upon you that your sanctification may not seem all that uh like you're making any progress um in fact, it might even, from your perspective, look like things are just continually getting worse. And why? Because you just owe more and more and more realize your sinful, wretched, bankrupt condition before God in your own righteousness. I mean, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't sin. Not one. And, uh, you know, one of the things I wonder about is it says... You know, the, the the entire law is summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. I don't even think I get number one, right? And so my question is, is does is it a continue, does God count up the sins every second, millisecond, microsecond that ticks off that I don't love him with all of my heart? And then it's all, 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 all of my heart. I don't even think I know what that, I don't even think I've successfully pulled it off for even a microsecond in my life. <laughs> if, if the standard is all of my heart in my heart, and out of my heart comes all kinds of things like murder, gossip, rebellion, um, adultery, you know, you know, out of the heart, all these things come, and it's my heart that uh, is it, that that you know. I I confess that I am sinful and wicked, and out of these, so does every is does God go? Okay, that was one more second, so therefore that's just another sin, and then that's another sin, and it, or is it every microsecond? I mean, how do you? In other words, my debt to God regarding my sin is something I could never pay, and all I can do is confess that I am a sinner and beg. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. So the life of the Christian is a is a life continuing of repentance, daily repentance. You never leave the cross, never leave the cross. And uh, once you realize this, actually, it, rather than being uh, something that uh, causes you to despair, it causes you to realize, yeah, I'm set free in Christ. You know, you know. Thank God that He has He has absolved me and declared me to be righteous, and uh, not because of something I did, but purely as a gift. So uh, we never we never move beyond repentance. It's daily repentance. And then the other perspective regarding sanctification is from the point of view of your neighbor. Your neighbor, your friends, might actually have a better. They they might go, wow. 
what's what's happened to you, Chris? You're different. Or what's happened to you, Ben? You're different. You you know, it, it, they it's your neighbor who's going to see your sanctification far better than you are. So don't focus on your progress and think and, and make that the determinator whether or not you think you're a Christian or not. Because from your perspective, it, it might look like things are getting worse just because you understand the depth of your sin. But from your neighbor's point of view, they, the, you know, as Christ continues to prune you, as con- he continues to sanctify you, to break you, to discipline you and make you into his image, your neighbor is more likely to see it than you are. So keep your eyes on Christ, not on you, even in your own sanctification, because he is the one who saves you. And uh, yeah, this is a great, this is exactly what the Christian life is. All right, uh, Lori writes, this is a great email. In fact, this email segues us into um, our purple people leader uh, thing from Stephen Furtick. Um, Lori writes, and uh, where's Lori from? It, it doesn't say. All right, it, it, Lori says, interesting um, sermon you reviewed on Tuesday. That was yesterday's sermon, the, the, the one called Dangerous Church. <sighs> Man. From life coach and uh, motivational speaker uh, Chris Songson. Can't refer to him as a pastor either. She says, it reminds me of the group I left a couple of years ago, and also the gathering where my parents attend, usually on Saturday nights. I've caused a bit of concern with my parents because I left the seeker kind of church for a confessional Presbyterian church. Praise God. Amen. She says, I I might have tried Lutheran, except all the ones around me were part of the Willow Creek Association. (laughs) Um. Yeah, folks, if uh, you can't find a good Lutheran church in your area because they've all gone Willow Creek or Purpose Driven, then absolutely a confessional Presbyterian church that preaches Christ and him crucified, go for it. Anyway, she says, I couldn't do that. Oh, yeah, almost forgot. My mom was really scared when I told her I was looking to attend a Lutheran service because the Lutherans have prayer books. (laughs) Oh, you could tell... uh, Lutherans put God in a box because they have a prayer book. Yeah, I wouldn't want to pray a prayer that somebody had actually written out ahead of time. Although, that's kind of leads to an interesting question. Uh, those of you who think that you can't possibly pray a prayer that has actually been written ahead of time, what do you think of the Lord's Prayer? Um, you know, because Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Um, I mean, isn't that putting God in the box? I mean, wasn't Jesus putting... Wasn't he, like, making it so that we couldn't be led by the Spirit by telling us to pray a particular prayer? anyway and she says i was raised in the kind of church where there is no creed but christ that doctrine divides and we only believe the bible etc no yeah no creed but christ and doctrine divides you know what's funny i had had some experience in churches similar to that and uh, i will have to agree with people when they say that doctrine divides it absolutely divides it's supposed to if doctrine is dividing light from darkness, truth from error, heresy from sound doctrine, then it's doing what it's supposed to do. Sound doctrine is not a four-letter word, okay? And uh, it, it, we can, when somebody makes the claim and says, "Hey, you know, I'm not into doctrine because doctrine divides," you say, "Absolutely, it does. That's what it's supposed to do." And truth and error and heresy and sound doctrine are, are, are things that are very important to God because He revealed that in His Word. All right, we continue. Um, Anyway, she sighs and says, Christian churches slash disciples of Christ. Oh, the legalism I grew up with and ran away from, and then Jesus called me to him. 
it's a joy to strive to be obedient now. Yeah, absolutely. That's the wonderful thing about the gospel is, is that um, the obedience that uh, that we live, we live in faith. And it, it's not something that we do because we think that God is about, you know, is this cosmic... Uh, you know, school teacher, you know, kind of like the nuns. You know, my grandfather, uh, the Polish Catholic grandfather, he would tell me stories about uh, having to go to Catholic church when he was a kid. And he had this hilarious story that he told that uh, when he was in the fourth grade, he was absolutely convinced that the nun who was his uh, school teacher should have uh, been a pitcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers. That shows you how, you know, my, my grandfather was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan because he grew up in Brooklyn and, and they didn't move out until later you know, to Los Angeles. And uh, he told of a time when he was sitting in the back of the room and he was trying to have a conversation with a buddy of his in school. And uh, the nun uh, overheard the conversation, grabbed an eraser off the chalkboard and uh, beamed him in the head with it. (laughs) That's an impressive feat. Anyway, um, so... (laughs) So this idea that uh, if, if you are understanding God in, in, you know, as part of the law, if you're following a legalistic, self-righteous religion, a religion that requires you to save yourself based upon your religion, in some ways your, your God is like that, uh, that is like a cosmic nun with a, good, with, a, you know, with a good pitching arm, you know, just waiting for you to mess up and then bean you in the head. But uh, when you understand that God is merciful and gracious through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for all of your sins and that there's nothing you can do to earn it. It's given to you completely as a gift and the Holy Spirit indwells you and is sanctifying you. Uh, The obedience, even as feeble as it is in this lifetime, is not motivated by you know worrying that god's gonna thump you but it's motivated out of love and gratitude for him and you can't help but do it anyway because you've been changed you're 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 no longer what you were anyway she she says one thing that struck me was songson's speaking style he was trying to sell me something get me on his team i mean it just feels so good to be with them at their church right uh, not so much if you're giving me a sales pitch. So here's my point, Lori writes. She says, or question as it may be, are purpose-driven, seeker-sensitive pastors referring each other to seminars slash classes on how to be better speakers? They all sound the same to me now every time you review one. It's one thing for a man to receive instruction on preaching the word of God so that God is revealed and glorified and not men, but when they're speaking is is not to lift up Jesus, but men, what can what we can do for God um, and make the world a better place? I happen to know that the senior leaders at Central Christian have attended seminars from Bill Butterworth. Central Christian, I think, is um, the uh, uh, what is that a Vegas based uh, seeker sensitive church? I think that's the one in Las Vegas. Um, has attended uh, uh, anyway. So Central Christian, maybe Lori's from uh, Vegas. Um, Central Christian uh, have attended seminars from Bill Butterworth, and Bill Butterworth has filled the stage at Central on occasion. You can check uh, those out from Central's podcast and iTunes. And the, uh, yeah, I featured that in the, the. They also had an American Chopper giveaway. They actually anyway. So he says, "Don't get me wrong. I think Bill Butterworth's seminars are probably beneficial for his business clients." Um. But 
this is uh, the church growth movement. Church is not a business, and their words of eloquent wisdom are indeed emptying the cross of its power. You know, Lori, I absolutely agree with what you're saying. And the, the question you ask is, do these guys that go to seminars and classes on how to be better speakers? What they do, um, one of the things that uh, the seeker-sensitive, purpose-driven movement does, these guys are all going to uh, similar seminars and conferences, you know, like the Catalyst uh, Conference, the Innovate Conference, uh, the conference that I went to uh, last year for the church, uh, the church planters, uh, which was called Evolve. The, these guys go probably to three or four conferences a year, and the Catalyst Conference was like one that was just recently uh, done, and, and Stephen Furtick spoke at that one. Uh, they get Guy Kawasaki and, and major business leaders that come, and they talk about leadership and things like that. So the answer to your question is, yeah, absolutely, these guys do go to conferences and seminars. And the main thrust of the stuff that's being uh, taught, at the, taught there is, um, is nuts and bolts business stuff. Not how to exegete God's word, but how to be a better leader, how to run, you know, how to be a visionary leader and things like that. And... Um, which is a perfect segue for uh, something that uh, I picked up on Stephen Furtick's website. And uh, if you're not all, you all familiar with Stephen Furtick? I know that I've uh, I've played Stephen Furtick before. And uh, Stephen Furtick is the uh, the founding pastor at Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. And um, and uh, Mr. Furtick, uh, Pastor Furtick, whatever you want to call him, um, he's um, we 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 have him on record berating people who would come to church expecting to um, be fed the word of God. Um, he, he, let, let me uh, let me play this little soundbite from when you showed up to church this morning. Did you show up with a bless me, feed me, make me fatter preacher? I don't intend to do a thing you say, but I'm gonna listen to you. And if you dadgum say one thing I don't like, I promise I'll cross my arms and cross my eyes at you the rest of the sermon. Did you show up to file a little bit more religious information in your already overloaded hard drive so that you could do absolutely nothing about it? The church is full of pot-bellied Christians waiting to shove their spiritual food down their mouth one more time, but they don't intend to do anything to bless anybody. You are a Pharisee. You sit on the front row. You yeah, that, that, that's Stephen Furtick. <laughs> Yeah, I, he's one of the guys I watch because he's a rock star among the purpose-driven types. And uh, he's uh, his next sermon series, can I call it that? Um, his next ser- uh, his next uh, seminar um, is, is called The Purple People Leader. And let me read this from Stephen Furtick's blog. Uh, Furtick writes, he says, A while back I was en route to speak at a leadership conference and it hit me. I travel around the country a good bit to speak on leadership principles, but I've never preached a series on leadership at my own church. And just re- reading these words, I went, <sighs> oh man, he travels around the country sp- speaking at leadership conferences and he's never preached a sermon series at his church on leadership. Anyway, he says, all that changes this starting this Sunday. Yippee, I can just feel a sermon review coming on next week. He says, uh, Furtick writes, he says, we're kicking off a sermon series exclusively focused on activating the leadership potential within you. So Joel Osteen's, uh, his, his church's tagline is discover the champion within, uh, it was, discover the champion in you and 
now Stephen Furtick is going to be preaching a um, self-help um, seminar on helping you activate the leadership potential within you. It will apply at a deep level to everyone, high school, juniors, stay-at-home moms, corporate executive, retirees. I look for it to be one of those series where I run out of weeks before we run out of concepts and content. The purple people thing, I'll have to explain that part on Sunday. And then he has a video introducing the purple people leader uh, um, self-help seminar. Uh, can't call it. And so he, on the one hand, he berates people who come to church expecting to be fed the word of God. And then this week, he's going to be offering people uh, a sermon to help them activate the leadership potential within you. Um, anyone out there know of any passages of scripture that talk about activating the leadership, uh, the potential leadership potential within you? Um I mean, I, I've, I've read the Bible cover to cover many times, and it just seems to elude me. I, just, I can't seem to figure out where in the Bible I'm supposed to turn to find passages. Or, are there any sermons or parables that Jesus taught on activating the leadership potential within me? And what if I don't want to be a leader? What if I just want to be a follower? Um, <laughs> oh, man. Um, folks, uh, email me if you have anything here. Uh, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. We'll, we'll be right back. Reaching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. 
I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody, uh, expects, uh, expects, no, nobody expects the, um, purpose driven, Inquisition. Uh, I, I know, I know, nobody expects the purpose driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do, chief ex- weapons are. our chief weapons are, um, purpose. Uh, uh, vision. Okay, and- okay, stop, stop that, stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose, blah, 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Fighting for the Faith is underwritten in part by LifeLock. Did you know that identity theft is a $50 billion a year business? And the severe downturn in the economy is providing identity thieves with even more incentives to hijack your identity and destroy your good name. But LifeLock provides a proactive identity theft service specializing in the prevention of identity theft rather than the reporting of it. LifeLock was founded in 2005 and is already considered the industry leader in identity theft prevention. In fact... LifeLock CEO Todd Davis is so confident in LifeLock's ability to protect your good name and stop identity thieves dead in their tracks that he freely shares his social security number on television, radio, and the internet. Furthermore, LifeLock guarantees its services up to $1 million. For more information on LifeLock, visit fightingforthefaith.com and click on the LifeLock logo on our homepage. All right, we're back, and you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported. If you find this program to be valuable, informative, educational, helping you grow in Christ, then I would ask you to please support us. And you can do so couple of ways you can support us uh, online go to fightingforthefaith.com and click on the donate button each and every episode has a donate button and uh, if you like to write a check you can do so by writing a check to pirate christian radio pirate christian radio post office box 791 san juan capistrano california 92693 your support enables us to continue to bring you this program as well as all of the lineup at Pirate Christian Radio, which is a wonderful station, folks. If, if You should listen to it at work. Stream it at the office. It's good, Christ-centered preaching, teaching, apologetics, issues, and commentary. It's just literally one of the best resources out there. And it's all about good Christian doctrine. Yeah, it's Lutheran. But see, uh, it's own, Lutheran doctrine is only correct insofar as it correctly interprets God's word, and that's what we strive to do. So we could use your help. We could use your support. Another way you can support us is by uh, purchasing the uh, the ebook that we have available this month, uh, Christianity and Liberalism. 
Go to piratechristianradio.com and click on the uh, Christianity and Liberalism cover and uh, purchase that. It's a great resource and a good book. You know, coming back to Stephen Furtick here and the Purple People Leader, um, it, kind of going back to our theme here, um, folks, the job of a pastor is to preach Christ and Him crucified, to bring you God's Word every single Sunday. You know, we could preach, I mean, truth is an important thing, but pastors are not called to preach just generic truth. I don't get up uh, in my Sunday school class on Sunday mornings and say, folks, I'm here to explain to you that E equals MC squared. And everyone goes, oh, thank you for that truth, Chris. Yes, E equals MC squared. It's true. And I don't get up and do messages on how the world is round. Although the world is round, and that is true, I don't do that in my Sunday school class. And your pastor shouldn't be teaching you that the world is round in Sunday school class because that's really not what that's for. Um, in church, we are to feed on the word of God. We are to preach and proclaim the word of God. And, by the way, Jesus himself is the word, which means that when we're bringing you the word of God, if we're excluding the one true word, Jesus Christ, and him crucified for your sins, then uh, we teachers are not doing what we're supposed to be doing. So, I, I mean, maybe, just maybe, all of this stuff that uh, life coach, um, seminar, conference speaker, uh, Stephen Furtick, the head teaching <clears throat> pastor at Elevation Church, maybe, just maybe, all of these leadership principles that he's going to be teaching on are just legit, okay? Are, 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 could, maybe they're as true as 2 plus 2 equals 4, but nowhere in Scripture are we called to preach on helping people activate the leadership potential within them. Okay, He's bringing us something other than the Word of God, which kind of leads me to a couple of things I would like to point out to you. Again, I, yesterday I, I, I've been rereading uh, Peeper's uh, Christian Dogmatics. Uh, fantastic stuff. And uh, regarding the Word of God uh, and uh, the sources of different religious knowledge, l- listen to this. Pieper writes, uh, it, it's clear that the, number of essent- that, the, that the number of essentially different sources and norms of religious knowledge is exactly two. Now, Pieper has pointed out, and I've pointed this out before in the show, that there's only two religions in the world. One religion that you have to save yourself based upon your works, and the, another religion that uh, you are saved by grace through faith alone as a gift from God through what Christ did on the cross. And otherwise, you are saved for Christ's sake. As a gift, it's grace. So there's a religion of works and the religion of grace. There's only two religions. And Pieper here is pointing out in, in his uh, systematic theology that there's only two norms of religious knowledge. Whatever is not taken entirely from the scripture has its origin in the human ego and is fittingly given the general name of rationalism. Whether it is called that outright or whether it's some euphemistic circumlocution is, is used. So whoever appeals to natural reason as the source and norm of theology appeals to his natural human ego. So, folks, we're not supposed to be preaching stuff from our ego. We're supposed to be preaching the word of God. Since the natural reason knows nothing of the gospel, and when it does stray into theology, necessarily reduces uh, the Christian religion to a system of morality, ethics, and opinions, for all that is left to reason is a little knowledge of the divine law. Peeper's point here is, is that um, if you're not preaching God's word, it, it, then what you're really just preaching is uh, your opinions and the stuff that comes out of your own ego and your own heart, and you've exalted yourself up to deity, apparently because your words and the that stuff is 
more important than God's word. And the other point that he's making is, is that nowhere else except for in the scriptures do we hear the message of Christ crucified for our sins. No one has imagined it. No one has thunk this up. This is something that we only find in God's word. It's an alien message, and it's not one that's written on our hearts. It, in fact, Romans says that the law is written on our hearts, not the gospel. And so it's only in God's word do we hear the reassuring, comforting words that God forgives our sins because of Christ. And when you preach stuff from within your heart, within your ego, you're not going to be bringing the gospel. You're going to be bringing something else. In fact, Luther, <clears throat> in uh, Luther, uh, Martin Luther said this. This is uh, from his word of warning to the people of Frankfurt on the Main. Luther says, outside of his word and without his word, we know of no Christ, much less of Christ's teaching. For the Christ, quote, the, the, the so-called Christ who pretends to bring his teaching without Christ's word is actually the abominable devil out of hell who uses Christ's holy name, and under it is peddling his infernal venom. <laughs> Luther had a funny way of putting things. But he's right, okay? If you, if you claim to be peddling Jesus without giving us Jesus' words, you're not bringing us Jesus Christ. You're actually bringing us the devil's teaching and the devil's venom. And, folks, we Christians have got to insist, insist, that our pastors preach Christ and bring us his word and not their opinions and self-help stuff and stuff that might technically be true but has nothing to do with Christ and him crucified, has nothing to do with God's word. I'm sorry, but there is no passage in Scripture, although maybe somebody can email me one, I don't know, that talks about activating the leadership potential within you. Why? Because the heart is deceitfully wicked. The problem that Christianity solves is the problem of our sin in our rebellion against God. In fact, I guarantee you that if you find a way to somehow activate the leadership potential within you, you're no more a Christian than my dog is. You know, there will be lots of people who've activated the leadership potential within him, within them who will be in hell. <sighs> All right, moving along. Nathan Bingham, I'm going to link to this at fightingforthefaith.com. He has a website a blog that he does. He's a, he's one of those young Calvinists out of Australia. And uh, I just want to keep encouraging him, stay in God's word and keep preaching Christ. You're doing a fine job. Um, he's uh, the, the, He and a friend do this uh, site. It's called Calvinist, but it's kind of, it's, it's cal.vini.st is uh, is the website itself. Uh, and you know, there's no .com. So if you wanted to visit it, it's cal.vini.st. Not sure what the .st stands for, but um, I'm just a, an American, so you know I, I'm not fully aware of all of the different extensions that are outside of the United States. And so it spells Calvinist uh, with a, with two of the dots in it. And he has a, a a piece that he wrote on January 19th of 2009. And the question is: Is one who follows signs and wonders a follower of Christ? Now, I'm not going to read this in its entirety, and I'm going to use this to springboard into the question of what is the purpose of signs and wonders within Christianity? Now, I'll be the first to say that God has not is not done performing miracles, and that He can and does perform miracles at His own uh, 
supreme decision to do so and you know many times without warning on our part i mean there's things that god does that are miraculous i'm not saying that god can't perform signs and wonders today the the question though is is that in the scriptures is signs and wonders uh, the end or is it something that buttresses the message of the gospel now don't don't do what john did john's not here today and he, he always points out that b is always the correct answer when i point things out now just work with me here even though i b is the correct answer um nathan writes he says, it's not uncommon to receive flyers in the letterbox promoting healing crusades where we are told that the deaf will hear, the blind will see, and that the lame will walk. I haven't received any of those in my letterbox. I wonder what's going on down there in uh, Australia. He says, the crusade is promoted in the name of Jesus Christ, clearly attempting to, quote, save souls through a demonstration of the power of God. And during my time within Pentecostal and charismatic circles, I was told often the reason Western nations were turning away from Christ was because the church had lost her ability to flow in miracles. Blech. <laughs> the claim was if there, if the Western church sought God with enough prayer and fasting, uh, law talk, did you hear that? If the Western church sought God with enough prayer, how do you know when there's enough prayer? and enough fasting that she would once again be able to demonstrate the power of God to the extent of even raising the dead. Uh, sounds like the Patricia King crowd. Uh, yeah, Patricia King, their group, uh, Extreme Prophetic, has a, an outreach, a mortuary outreach you know, for raising the dead, but so far they haven't raised anybody. Anyway, and consequently, all those who are seeking after God would turn and follow Christ. In this uh, post, I intend to springboard from a brief series I did on the work of God and the means God uses to save his elect, answering the question, is one who follows signs and wonders a follow of Christ? Now, his first point has to do with the fact that the, that the scriptures are clear that there's no one who seeks God. And I'm going to go to a second major point, though. He says, signs and wonders may draw crowds, but not disciples. Um, Nathan writes, he says, I believe the dedication many have to power evangelism is based on pragmatic thinking. That is to say, if it works, then it is good. When a church runs a healing crusade, many people may flock to the event, many people may come to the front for a miracle, and many may make a profession of faith, a decision for Jesus, or a pledge of allegiance. However, is this really making disciples? And the answer is no. Um, I contend signs and wonders may draw crowds, but not necessarily true disciples of Jesus Christ. Considering follow the following account in John's Gospel. Uh, John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning himself, for he, for he himself knew what was inside of a man. Uh, John chapter 2, 23 and 25 informs us that it that it is possible for people to believe in the name of Jesus in response to observing miraculous signs, but for those people to not to have not experienced saving faith. I believe this account parallels largely what occurs amongst the hype of power evangelism. Sadly, many people make a profession of faith based upon the signs that they observe. However, not truly believing upon the one whom the signs should point. Now, this is where Nathan's making a great point, and that is, is that signs and wonders are always pointing to a message. And there is a day coming, the scripture warns us, that uh, where there will be the man of lawlessness, there will be false prophets, there will be uh, false Christs, and ultimately the man of lawlessness, you know, if, if he shows up on the scene, he'll be able to perform miracles. Okay, 
Miracles always support a message, always support a message. So not every miracle is, is one that points us to Christ. Um, so the purpose of a miracle is to support a message. And the problem with a lot of these power people is that they make uh, signs and wonders the end, not Jesus Christ. They make the miracle the end. So we're, we have a healing ministry. We have a miracle ministry. And the, the focus is on the miracles. But in the scriptures... And this is where I want to kind of deviate from uh, from Nathan's uh, thing here is uh, in the scriptures, the miracles support or buttress the message. They point you to the message. And so what I'd like to do is uh, if you got your Bibles with you, we're going to take a look at Acts chapter three and four. Now, yesterday I read part of Acts chapter three where uh, Peter and John went into the temple and uh, they, there was a beggar there and, you know, asking for money. And Peter says, you know, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have, I tell you in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And everyone was like, wow, okay. All right, so he performs a miracle actually, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter does this. Peter didn't do it, but the Holy Spirit did it through Peter. And as a result of the miracle, he was able to proclaim forgiveness, repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. So when we see signs and miracles, the question that you immediately need to have, regardless of who's performing the miracle, is what is the message that this miracle is supporting? Okay? What is the message? And if people are coming after the miracles themselves, they're missing the message. And if the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins is not being proclaimed, then... uh, then these are false miracles, false signs that are designed to distract you away from the gospel and distract you away from Christ. Okay. So let me uh, read again Peter's sermon and we'll continue on in Acts chapter four. And so Peter's preaching his, and now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did uh, also your rulers. This is Acts chapter three, verse 17. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. And you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and if... And in your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Okay, so listen carefully to what I'm saying here. If there's a miracle that's being performed, if there's a sign, sign and wonder that's being performed, the question you've got to look at is what is the message that's being proclaimed that these signs and wonders are supporting? Because that's what they're for. So this miracle that uh, Peter and John did, you know, raising up this uh, this guy, uh, this uh, cripple, and he has the ability to walk now, that was designed to get people's attention and support the message, the message of people turning away from their wickedness, repenting and trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. 
if somebody performs a miracle and they give you a different gospel or point you in a different message or point to the miracle itself as somehow the end, they're not pointing you to Jesus Christ. They're not pointing you to the gospel. They're pointing you away from Christ and you should not believe it. The purpose of miracles ultimately is to support a message. And so you've got to look, what's the proof in the pudding? What's the message being preached? Now we continue. Acts chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain and the temple of the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came out to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they set them in their midst, they inquired by what power or by what name or whose authority. When you say, when you hear in scripture, by what name, that's uh, that's an authority question. By what name did you do this? Then Peter, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name or by the authority of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, and by this man, that by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Again, notice that the miracle is tied to the message. Here, Peter and John are being examined by the chief priests and the elders regarding the miracle that had been performed. And they want to know by whose authority and by what power this was done. This is exactly what we need to be asking, believe it or not. Um, if we see somebody performing miracles or ha- claiming to have a miracle ministry or a par- uh, power ministry, by what, ath- by what authority? What's the message that they're bringing? And what was the message? <laughs> Again, Peter is like a, um, he's got a one-hit wonder message. I mean, he's got the same song. He just sings it over and over and over again. That there's salvation in Jesus Christ alone, that they crucified Jesus, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and that there's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Jesus, 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 Jesus. And uh, with Patricia King, the Todd Bentleys, the John Crowders, they're not pointing you to Jesus. They're pointing you to the miracles, which means they're pointing you to the wrong thing. Again, it's a form of spiritual misdirection. The story continues. I love this story. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing before them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, Well, what shall we do with these men? For that is a notable sign that, that for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Notice the Pharisees, the the, the teachers of the law, the high priest in them. Uh, they didn't command them to not perform any miracles. They promo- they commanded them to no longer preach in the name of Jesus. Right? They couldn't do anything about the miracle, but oh, we got to get them to stop preaching Christ and Him crucified and salvation for sins and the resurrection of the dead. We got to get we got to get them to shut up about Jesus. That's what they're they're, they're 
You see what I'm saying here, folks? The miracles support, they buttress, they prop up and point to Christ. Okay? So they called in Peter and John and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Okay? So the miracle supports the message. And we continue. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers that were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and by your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their hearts and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Notice here in this passage, they were praying for boldness to continue to proclaim the word of God. And they were praying for signs and wonders to accompany the preaching but the preaching was the most important thing the problem with these people who are chasing after signs and wonders is they are chasing after signs and wonders for the sake of signs and wonders but the scriptures are clear it's signs and wonders that accompany the preaching of christ and him crucified are the ones that we should be looking for if at all and it's not necessarily the norm they were more concerned about preaching boldly than they were about signs and wonders can god do signs and wonders you bet he can does he not very often but you know what? Every sinner that repents and trusts in Christ for salvation is another person who has literally been raised from the dead. It is a miracle when that happens, and that's how we have to view it. So the Christian, the biblical way to look at signs and wonders is first to ask the question is, what message is the, are these signs and wonders promoting? If it's a different message, if it's a message, you know, believe me, there's signs and wonders in other religions. And uh, some of them are valid. But if they don't promote Christ crucified for our sins and are calling men to repentance of their wickedness and their sinfulness and turning to Christ to receive forgiveness of sins, these are not, these are not signs and wonders from the Holy Spirit. These are not signs and wonders from God. They're signs and wonders from the devil. So I just bring this all up because it's an important issue that we Christians have to continue to look at and examine because we don't want to get caught up in all the hype. But what we do want to do, what we do want to do is look for the preaching and teaching of Christ crucified for our sins. For our sins. 
and to preach it and teach it with boldness. Yes, sir. All right, we're up on our second break, and when we get back, we're going to continue in the book of Mark. We're going to listen. We're going to read a little thing here from John Piper. Um, the name of the uh, of this blog post from John Piper is "How Barack Obama Will Make Christ a Minister of Condemnation." An important piece we need to we need to review, and then we'll listen to part of a sermon that uh, John Piper preached back when uh, Bill Clinton was inaugurated president. It's on uh, on on the really. What do you do when you're pro when you're pro life and you got a pro abortion president? So uh, we're going to do that when we get back. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. We will be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com, or the big-picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. All right, we're back. And you are listening to Fighting for the Faith. I am Chris Rosebro, your servant in Jesus Christ, dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment. And even though we don't have the ability to take um, phone calls while I'm doing the program, do not despair. 
contact me at talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. I love dialogue. And if you think I've said something that doesn't jive with scripture, by all means, send your passages and let's talk. So uh, we'll, we'll go from that. In fact, those, those types of things get moved to the front of the line many times. All right, we're uh, we're continuing our uh, our march through the book of Mark, and the the purpose of this is really just to hear the gospel narrative itself, to hear Christ and the things that He's done, and it's simple. This is kind of a demonstration of just how easy it is to teach um, to teach God's word. It's not that difficult. It requires a little bit of work on your part, and pay attention to the grammar and to the text. And uh, before I do that, I want to read um, something from Luther. Uh, yeah, I know. I, I'm a Lutheran. This is from his preface to the uh, Old Testament, and it applies here, too. And uh, let me read this for you. Uh, Luther, uh, his admonition in his preface to the Old Testament that he translated uh, from uh, Hebrew into German, he says, I beg and faithfully warn every pious Christian not to stumble at the simplicity of the language and the stories that will often meet him here. He should not doubt that however simple they may seem, these are the very words, judgments, and deeds of the high majesty, power, and wisdom of God. For this is scripture, and it makes fools of all the wise and prudent, and is an open book to the small and the foolish. Therefore, dismiss your own thoughts and feelings, and think of the scriptures as the loftiest and noblest of holy things, as the richest of minds, which can never be exhausted so that you may find the wisdom of God that he lays before you in such foolish and simple guise, in order that he may quench all pride. (laughs) I love it. All right, with that, we're going to continue in the book of Mark. Again, this is just about reading and doing it. What am I, what am I recommending? Familiarize yourself with the story and you, 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 uh, you parents out there, read this to your children tonight. I'm serious. When dinner is done, say, we're going to start a new tradition here. We're going to read God's word and, and, and fathers, this is your job. Fathers, you are the pastor of your family in a real sense. You are the head of your family. God has made you the head. And your responsibility doesn't end with uh, putting food on the table. Your job is to teach God's word to your children and to wash your, your, your wife in God's word. So we read Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now, the story that we're going to read here, this is, uh, this is the story of the uh, healing of the paralytic. And th- this guy's going to be lifted, uh, literally lowered down to the roof of this house. And many people think, you know, for whatever reason, that this is Peter's house. But read the text. This is actually Jesus' house in Capernaum. At some point, Jesus has got a home in Capernaum. This is not Peter's house. It's Jesus' house. And so many people miss this. And it kind of changes it a little bit of the dynamics of the story when you realize this. This isn't, you know, at Peter's house. This isn't some this is Jesus' home that's being wrecked here. And so when he, Jesus, re- returned to Capernaum after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, uh, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. 
So Jesus is teaching in his home. The door is blocked, and, and he's preaching at his house. And what do these people do? They dig a hole in Jesus' roof. And when Jesus saw their faith, he didn't sit there and say, whoa, wait a second. I, no, man, i got to go to Home Depot now. Um, <laughs> no, he says, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Man, I want to hear Jesus say that. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Great question. And the answer to the question is nobody can forgive sins except for God alone. That's the point of Jesus saying, son, your sins are forgiven. We continue. And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they were questioning, that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic that your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Notice. What would I say earlier? Miracles support a message, and here the miracle supports the proclamation and proves the authority of Jesus to forgive sins. <laughs> the miracle isn't the important thing, it was the forgiveness of sins. Okay, but the miracle proved that Christ could do it, and that, again, the miracle supports the message of the forgiveness of sins. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose and picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We've never seen anything like this. Yeah, you bet you never have. So Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Again, same kind of thing that we see with the the fishermen that Jesus called. But now he's calling a tax collector. Tax collectors. Now, just from a little bit of a historical context here, uh, there's a hierarchy of sinners that we all have in our lives. In in our culture, we would basically say that uh, you know the hierarchy starting from the bottom would be kind of like gang member, thug, uh, prostitute, bank robber, drug addict. You know, those are the dregs of society. Okay, in our in our culture. Back then, uh, the dregs of society would also include prostitutes and and tax collectors. They were pretty much uh, at the low end of the morality rung. Uh, In fact, you wouldn't want to have a a tax collector in your synagogue. Uh, They wouldn't really be necessarily welcome because uh, you'd be in their face because these people had, um, especially if they were Jewish, they were considered um, traitors because they worked for that pagan Roman government, and they just had this really bad reputation for requiring people to pay more than what was required by Caesar. You know, So they had this really bad habit of making themselves very wealthy off of everyone else. And, um, and so Jesus goes to a tax collector who's only slightly better, if at all, than a prostitute in the minds of the people there, and he comes to him and says, follow me. This is going to create some problems. Okay. Now, as Jesus reclined at the table in Levi's house, there were many tax collectors and sinners that were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. 
And the scribes and the Pharisees, now keep in mind, the scribes and the Pharisees, these are people who believe that they are justifying themselves, that they are saving themselves by how good they are. That's the problem with Pharisees and tax collectors. They're legalists, okay? So when the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, um, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Any self-respecting, self-righteous person would never do such a thing, right? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. Jesus didn't come for the righteous. If you are already righteous, you don't need Jesus. If you are trying to save yourself and think that you're doing a great job of saving yourself and justifying yourself before God by the things that you are doing, you don't need Jesus. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. He only came to call sinners. Are you a sinner today? Are you a sinner? Then the good news is that Jesus would even eat at your house and proclaim to you the forgiveness of sins won by him on the cross. Well, that's all we're going to read in Mark today. But it's good news. And the thing I love about these stories is that they challenge our self-righteousness. They challenge this idea that somehow we save ourselves by our good works. And Jesus, again and again and again, is the Savior of sinners. This is the good news. In fact, it's such good news because I know that Christ can save even a sinner as wretched as me. All right. Kind of changing gears here. We're going to do a little bit of law work right now. And I want to read something from John Piper. The article, and I'll put a link to it up at fightingforthefaith.com, is How Barack Obama Will Make Christ a Minister of Condemnation. This is an interesting piece. Uh, John Piper, uh, a reformed uh, Calvinist guy, and he's kind of he's actually a pretty compelling pastor and preacher. Um, now, this is referring to this is uh, his take on the uh, on having Bishop Gene Robinson pray at the Lincoln Memorial at uh, at uh, Barack Obama's one of the pre-inaugural events. Here's what uh, Piper writes. He says that Barack Obama's request tomorrow in the Lincoln in the Lincoln Memorial, Gene Robinson, the first openly non-celibate homosexual bishop in the Episcopal Church, will deliver the invocation for the inauguration kickoff. This is tragic, not mainly because Obama is willing to hold up the legitimacy of homosexual intercourse, but because he's willing to get behind the church endorsement of sexual intercourse between men. It is one thing to say two men may legally have sex. It's another thing to say the Christian church acted acceptably in blessing Robinson's sex with men. The implications of this are serious. It means that Barack Obama is willing not just to tolerate, but to feature a person with a viewpoint that makes the church a minister of damnation. Now, this is important. Okay. Again, the tragedy here is not that many people in public life hold views like atheism that lead to damnation, but that Obama is making the church the minister of damnation. 
The Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, and you were declared righteous. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. What Paul is saying about things like adultery, greed, stealing, and homosexual practice, what is it that Paul is saying about it? As J.I. Packer put it, they are ways of sin that, if not repented of and forsaken, will keep people out of God's kingdom of salvation. In other words, to bless people in these sins instead of offering them forgiveness and deliverance from them is to minister damnation to them, not salvation. The gospel with its forgiveness and deliverance from homosexual practice offers salvation. Gene Robinson, with his blessing and approval of homosexual practice, offers damnation, and he does it in the name of Christ. It is though Obama sought out a church which blessed stealing and adultery and then chose its most well-known thief and adulterer and asked him to pray. One more time, the issue here is not that presidents may need to tolerate things they don't approve of. The issue is this, in linking the Christian ministry to the approval of homosexual activity, Christ is made a minister of condemnation. And I think that Pat, uh, uh, Piper here has a great point. Remember, we just read in Mark that Jesus came to not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. The problem is, is that Gene Robinson is basically saying that homosexuality is a righteous practice rather than a sinful behavior that needs to be repented of. So he's basically, his message is that homosexuals are not sinners, they're righteous. Or as Ed Bacon put it, they are blessed by God in their homosexuality. And this is where the rub comes in there as for President Obama. President Obama invited Gene Robinson, and President Obama is a self-proclaimed Christian. He is a self-proclaimed Christian, and as the president, he invited a Christian minister who is unrepentantly homosexual. He thinks he's righteous rather than sinful, and he's preaching homosexual righteousness in the name of Christ. And this, by adding his presidential seal of legitimacy to Gene Robinson, is turning Christ into a minister of condemnation, as Piper has put it. And I think Piper does a fine job there. All right, for the balance of our program today, we are going to uh, listen to a sermon that uh, Piper preached Um on being pro-life under a pro-choice president. And this um, this sermon itself uh, was preached during Bill Clinton's, uh, after Bill Clinton became president. So this goes back a little bit, goes back a little ways. But the information here is relevant even today. And I think it's important for us to hear this because 
uh, we Christians, you know, you know, we we operate in two kingdoms. We operate in the kingdom of God, which is a kingdom of the forgiveness of sins. And we are also American citizens, just like Paul was a, a Roman citizen. We are also American citizens, which means that we have, uh, we, the people of the United States, are the ones who have the sovereignty in our nation. And so right now, we are the out party. If you are pro-life and believe that unborn Human beings are still human beings and that abortion is murder. This is an issue that you've got to come to grips with. And how do we as Christians, what's the Christian way of uh, approaching this problem when we've got uh, a president whom we so strongly disagree with? I, I said yesterday, we need to pray that Obama repent. Pray that God, the Holy Spirit, would get a hold of him through the preaching of the word and that Obama, through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, would repent of this wickedness and this wicked, wicked policy and evil and that God would help him. Well, Piper goes a little farther than that. but uh, So here, here's uh, John Piper on uh, being pro-life under a pro-choice president. Hang on a second here. To every human institution... If you're using a uh, Pew Bible, that's uh, page 1440. For the Stay with me. Here we go. Text for this morning's message is found in 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you're using a uh, Pew Bible, that's uh, page 1440. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. In A.D. 37, there was a little boy born in Italy named Lucius Domitius Ahenobarus. His mother's name was Agrippina the Younger. She married Claudius, the emperor of Rome, and then he adopted this little boy as his own and renamed him Nero Claudius Drusus Germanicus. The adoption and the name change was all a part of a scheme on the mother's part to see that the little boy become the emperor of Rome in place of Britannicus Claudius' natural biological son. In A.D. 54, when Nero was 17 years old, his mother arranged that her husband Claudius be poisoned to death and Nero was proclaimed emperor of Rome. His reign lasted 14 years and then he committed suicide at the age of 31. During those 14 years, the first half was relatively stable and good because he was surrounded by advisors that were wise, Burrus, 
The chief and head of the Praetorian Guard was a wise and stable man. And the most famous of all, Seneca, the Stoic philosopher, was a good counselor. But he was a selfish emperor and unstable and fearful and became paranoid of all the rumors of people wanting to kill him. And so, in 55 AD, he had his brother, half-brother Britannicus, killed. In 59 AD, he had his mother executed. In 62 AD, he had his first wife, Octavius, executed. And Seneca, his trusted counselor, was forced to commit suicide. In 63 AD, the Apostle Peter arrives in Rome, probably. All right, I'm going to say something here. Notice he's not necessarily preaching the text at the moment. The text has been given. And he's giving us some historical context for the text that was read. This does not count as going outside of Scripture in, in the truest sense of the word. He's bringing in other sources to help us better understand the text. This is a good thing to do at times. We continue. Putting some pieces together there from Paul's letters and things we know from external sources and from his letter here. <clears throat> he arrives in Rome. Rome in those days among Christians had the code name Babylon. The reason it was called Babylon, we know that from Revelation, three times it was called Babylon. We, the reason it was called Babylon is because the ancient Babylon in Mesopotamia was the place to which the people of God were taken into exile. It represented the big, strong, mighty, powerful coming together of the forces of evil in an urban, complex, anti-God. And so as that Babylon faded into obscurity, and the Christians looked around on their scene, where is the great whore, John calls it in Revelation, the great Babylon, Rome on her seven hills, was the embodiment of anti-Christian power and evil in the culture of that day. And so in chapter 5, verse 13, Peter says, the church, she who is in Babylon, sends you greetings. July 19. 64 A.D., the fire broke out in the southern provinces or regions of the city, and it burned for six days across the city. And when it was just about to go out, it broke out again in the north, and for three more days it swept across the north of Rome. And when it was out, after about nine days, ten of the fourteen wards of Rome were leveled, and it was over, and there was an incredible frenzy in Rome. So much so that people began to rumor and spread rumors that Nero himself had set the fire, both in the north and the south, in order that his maniacal desire to rebuild Rome in his own image and get a name for himself would be realized. And Nero saw this rumor spreading, and he looked around for a scapegoat, and he found it in the Christians. And he spread the rumor that the Christians started the fire and the result for the Christian community was unspeakably horrible. Not for 30 years since the life of Jesus had anything like this happened so broadly to a Christian community. They were crucified 
In Nero's garden, they were sown, Tacitus, the historian tells us, they were sown into wild animal skins and fed starving dogs. They were impaled on stakes and dipped in flammable oil and planted in Pharaoh's gardens and burned all night long to give light in the night. Uh, so much for the uh, <clears throat> Jesus came that you might have your best life now, which is understanding this in, as far as early Christian history and what early Christians suffered at the hands of the Romans and at the hand of Nero, the persecutions that they went through. Uh, this should completely obliterate any idea that you might have that Jesus came that you might have an abundant life here on earth, and that means health, wealth, uh, no persecution, uh, the uh, a gorgeous uh, Victoria's Secret model wife, uh, a great sex life, and perfectly behaved children. Um, if that were the case, then you know the apostles who uh, who really spent three years of their lives with Jesus Christ, they should have been the perfect examples of that. They should have had villas, you know, personal villas and and large properties and complexes in the south of France. Uh, instead, they were fed to the animals, crucified, and became not uh, torches. That's what happened to the early Christians. They didn't have their best life then. And Peter was crucified in 64 A.D. Some traditions say upside down so that he would not be identical to the Lord Jesus. Peter's letter that David read from was probably written sometime between 63 and 64, just before this great fire. He tells us throughout this letter of the persecution and the suffering of believers, but it doesn't look like what happened. And so in all likelihood, the letter was written before this terrible persecution broke out, but Peter, with prophetic accuracy in chapter 4, sees it coming. And he writes in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. So the letter comes right out of the context of that kind of situation just before the persecution reaches its peak. Now, notice uh, his him taking the time to give us the historical backdrop of this letter really helps us see, wow, what he's saying. He get, it gives more power to what it is that Peter wrote. It's it that historical understanding brings this letter to life and makes you go, wow, what he wrote is really powerful. Why? Not because he wrote it, because he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this. And this information, what this this message from the Holy Spirit that Peter wrote for us is important even today, especially today. Peter not only knew of Nero, he knew other leaders in the world as well. He knew of Pontius Pilate. He lived under Pontius Pilate most of his latter years there in Judea while he was ministering with Jesus, and he knew that this Pontius Pilate had, for no reason at all, washed his hands of Jesus, handed him over to be beaten, and turned him over to be crucified. He knew that's the kind of leader he was. He knew Herod Antipas in Galilee, who three years earlier had 
chopped off John the Baptist's head as a dancing prize, and then three years later had taken his purple robe and put it around Jesus and mocked him with his soldiers. He knew Herod the Great probably as a little boy growing up in Galilee and all the rumors that he had put every child in Bethlehem to death 30 years earlier. Peter did not grow up in a Christian nation. He did not grow up in a world where he had any naive notions that rulers were good people. He knew the depravity of the human nature and the utterly ruinous corruption that political power can bring. And into that world, he says, verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as to one in authority or to governors as sent by him. And verse 17, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, Honor the king. Unbelievable. Now the point in drawing attention to Nero, Pilate, Herod is not to suggest that there is a Nero or Pilate or Herod in America today. The point is, if Peter could command the Christian community in that setting to submit themselves to that kind of leader, then how much more must I take seriously the command today to submit myself to Bill Clinton and Governor Cross? I would even say, and now let's fast forward the tape, to Barack Obama. We continue. Even though they endorse and promote acts which I regard as immoral and barbaric, dishonorable. How do you honor a man who endorses dishonorable deeds? It's not a new question. Nero was a dishonorable man. So was Pilate. So was Herod, both of them. And yet we have the command. But my question this morning is how do I, as a pro-life Christian, honor President-elect Bill Clinton when I know that he supports the right to kill unborn children for any reason up to the point of viability, that's 23, 22, 21 weeks and falling every year, and he endorses the taking of those lives after the point of viability, if the woman says to her doctor, I will be emotionally traumatized by this birth. And the reason we know that that's what the president-elect believes is because he has pledged himself to endorse the Freedom of Choice Act, which is before the Congress. And if you want to read about it, there are papers out on the table there that will explain what's in the bill. That bill, if passed, will put into federal statute and legislation laws that will make null all state laws which regulate abortion. It will put into federal law what is constantly being challenged at the Supreme Court level because of state laws and therefore end those disputes. This message is not intended to be political, but I'm learning some things in the last 12 years of preaching and trying to be a 
just an obedient Christian, read the Bible and do what it says in a pagan culture. I'm learning that that's political. To read the Bible and do what it says is political. Whether you want it to be or not, to read the Bible and to do what it says in public, to follow your conscience as it's informed with biblical principles, will bring you into social, legal, and political conflict in this culture. For example, never before in my life have I been forced to leave a restaurant because of my pro-life views. But just a few weeks ago with another pastor in a restaurant nearby, he was recognized, perhaps we were recognized, as being involved in pro-life demonstrations over at, at uh, uh, Robbinsdale. And they said, we've had bad experiences with you and we're not going to serve you here. And as we were leaving, the proprietor with fire in her eyes said, you get out of my restaurant, you woman haters. All that for just praying, walking in front of Robbinsdale Abortion Club. To be an obedient Christian will increasingly in America bring discrimination and persecution against you. You cannot help but be political, social, and have legal consequences if you will be obedient. The aim of this message is not political. The aim is to be theological, biblical, and ethical because the question is forced upon me like it never has been before from chapter 2, verse 17. Honor Bill Clinton, who holds, in my judgment, dishonorable and barbaric views. So I have a problem. We have a problem. That's the issue. The issue isn't to be political. The issue is how can I be biblical? How can I be obedient to that verse? What our future president endorses is not the right to scrape a few fetal cells off the wall of the uterus. What he endorses is that human beings who have a beating heart, who give an EKG reading, who have brain waves, who grasp with their little fingers, who suck their thumb, who respond to pain, who carry all the chromosome genetic makeup of humans rather than any other being, may rightfully, for any reason up to the point of viability, be killed by dismemberment. That's what he believes. And that which I described is an eight-week-old fetus, You can't see that picture, but there are a lot of these out there. This is the best little brochure that I have ever seen for pro-life. It comes from Dobson, pro-life, focus on the family, because it has the description of the baby at every stage with pictures, and it's not a big, expensive book. We'll give them to you free if we don't run out, and we'll get more if we do. That eight-week-old fetus, virtually no abortions are done before seven or eight weeks. It's not medically advisable. But to get a real handle on what Bill Clinton really believes about abortion, 
you have to realize that not only does that little child get no protection, but this one doesn't either. This is 11 or 13 weeks. But that head, eyes, nose, legs, arms, no protection whatsoever. Most abortions probably are done on babies almost this size. But that's not all. At 20 weeks, the baby looks like this. I'll show you the whole thing here. This is the womb, actual size. And he's snuggled in there. And the reason it looks so small is because his feet are up to his chin and his arms are all folded in. If you unfold this baby out to a standing position, he's about 10 inches long. Now, this baby cannot yet quite survive outside the womb. And therefore, we've lost a couple in this church this side. And I've seen I've seen them in their mother's hand. Bill Clinton believes you do not need any reason but sex selection, birth control, to go into a womb and cut this baby to pieces. That's how they kill him. They cut them to pieces. Pause here for a second. <clears throat> the law, this is all law right now. And he's preaching it lawfully in the sense that he is exposing the sin of, of, of murder in the guise of something called pro-choice. And at this point, keep in mind that uh, back in 1992, this was preached in January of 1993, uh, 16 years ago, um, you know, it, Bill Clinton, a self-proclaimed Baptist Christian, it's much same situation that we have today right now with uh, Barack Obama who claims to be a Christian and uh, and he, you know he is pro abortion we've got the same dilemma no, what does Solomon say uh, <clears throat> nothing new under the sun so uh, here Piper is uh, is at this point being graphic and it's graphic to a point because it's exposing men's sin well let's see what he does with this you're sitting there right now, as some of you are, really angry at me, <clears throat> really not believing at all what I'm saying, feeling like shouldn't be said, then the problem you're going to have to wrestle with in this service is very different than my problem, but not entirely different. My problem is, I believe that's barbaric. I believe that's wicked, profoundly evil. And I'm called upon to honor that man who is, from his point of power, going to try to remove the protection of that baby. You now must wrestle with how to honor me for preaching that falsehood. Because verse 17 not only says, honor the king... It says, honor all men, including pastors who preach falsehood. So the issue is very much the same for both of us. 
And so you're feeling like walking out right now. People always walk out when I preach on abortion. Though in saying this, I might have stopped it in the first service. I hope that you will stay there knowing that I know you're there. And that what I say about my struggle, you will translate into your struggle about how to honor me. So that there can be talk and not obscenities. That's not my issue. I believe what I say is true. I believe it's biblical and I believe it will triumph in the end. But I know that there are people here who are very angry right now that they had to come in here and they didn't know this was going to happen to them and they don't stand for this and they wish they weren't trapped right now. That's okay. I know you're here. You're not trapped. You have integrity. What I want to do is give you eight answers to the question, how should I, John Piper, or you if you're pro-life, honor the president-elect? Number one, I'm just going to address these to Bill Clinton. And so many people at the door after last service said, why don't you put that in a letter form and get 1,200 people to sign it and just send it to him? So that's what I'll probably do. So what you're going to hear for the next 10 minutes or so is a letter to the president, which maybe you'll have a chance to sign if you want to. We will honor you, number one, Mr. President, by humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, according to 1 Peter 5, 6, and acknowledging that we ourselves, we pro-life Christians, are sinners and in need of mercy and forgiveness. All right. What did he do? He preached the law to condemn sin, and now what's the solution? Right off the bat. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. There's the gospel. There's the gospel. So he wants to contact or communicate to then-president-elect Bill Clinton, and uh, now we can do the same thing if you wanted to with... uh, Barack Obama, confessing that we before God are all sinners in need of a Savior. And who is our Savior? Jesus Christ. Let's continue. From God. We are not infallible. We are open to new light on this and every issue. We are not the final judge of you or anybody. God is. We stand On level ground with you, before the cross, supplicants of mercy and longing to be obedient to the King, Jesus. We honor you by humbling ourselves with you under God as fallible sinners who need salvation and forgiveness. Number two. We honor you, Mr. President, by acknowledging that you are a man created in the image of God and distinct from all the other beings on the face of the earth. James 3, 9. You are not a mere animal. You have the glorious potential, like all humans, of being a child of God, if you are not already, and shining like the sun in the kingdom of our Father forever and ever. And we honor you as an utterly unique human being created in the image and likeness of the living God with untold potential. Third, 
We will honor you, Mr. President, by acknowledging that government is God's institution, God's creation. He wills that there be leaders like presidents and governors. You are in power by divine appointment, and we honor that. Romans 13.4 says, you are God's servant for our good, and it grieves us that you are not going to stand up for the good of the unborn, the most weak, innocent, helpless group of Americans. Nevertheless, we have seen from Somalia that bad government is better than no government. And that the absence of some laws to protect some citizens is better than the absence of all laws which give protection to nobody. And therefore, we honor your stabilizing role. And in this sense, we count you, Mr. President, a blessing from God. Fourth, we will honor you by submitting to the laws of the land and of the state. Wherever they do not conflict with our higher allegiance to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords and President of presidents. We will submit to laws that take away our right to choose to go 75 miles an hour. We will submit to laws that take away our right to choose to keep our lights off while our windshield wipers are on. We will submit to laws that take away our right to choose to drive without a seat belt. We will submit to laws that take away our right to choose to fish without a license. We will Submit to laws that take away our right to choose to make loud noises in the middle of the night. We will submit to laws that take away our right to choose to keep our kids out of schooling. We will submit to laws that take away our right to choose to send them to school without DPT shots. We will submit to laws that take away our right to choose to use leaded gasoline. We will submit to laws that take away our right to choose not to pay taxes. We will submit to laws that take away our right to choose to smoke on the other side of the restaurant because we know, Mr. President, that governments exist to take away the right to choose. We will submit to your laws. But, Mr. President, according to 1 Peter 2.13, we do not submit for your sake. We submit for the Lord's sake. He created the government. He wills that it be stable and exist. He wills that Christians be humble and submissive and not recalcitrant and stubborn. We will submit, not because you have power, but because our King Jesus says, go back in to this foreign and alien land and submit wherever you can for my sake and bring me glory. Yet, Mr. President, our submission is an honor to you because under God, from God, you bear the authority to enforce these laws. If we will honor you, Mr. President, by not withdrawing into little communes of disengaged isolation from American culture, we admit we're tempted. But according to 1 Peter 2.15... We will honor you by trying to do as much good as we possibly can in America for the cause of the unborn, for the cause of the unwanted born, and for the cause of women in distress, so that when we call upon you to join us in this, it will not be with hypocrisy. 
and it will not seem insolent to you that we have called upon you to join us in doing good to the unborn. The Bible says in verse 15, It is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Mr. President, we want to honor you by joining you in doing as much good as we can. Sixth, we will honor you, Mr. President, by opposing your position as long as we can with nonviolence instead of violence, with reasoning instead of rocks, with rational passion instead of screaming, with honorable speech instead of obscenities, with forthright clarity of language instead of dodging the tough realities and tough words, with evidence instead of authority, and with scientific portrayals of life instead of authoritarian blackouts. We will honor you by a relentless effort to put truth and not mere emotion before you in the White House as long as you're there. Seventh, we will honor you by expecting from you straightforward answers to straightforward questions. We would not expect this from a hypocrite or a con man or a chimp. We expect it from an honorable man. For example, are you willing to explain why a baby's right not to be killed is less important than a woman's right not to be pregnant. Explain it to us, Mr. President. Or are you willing to explain why most cities have laws forbidding cruelty to animals, but you oppose laws forbidding cruelty to human fetuses? Are they not at least animals? Explain it to us with forthright, open, public words? Or are you willing to explain why government is unwilling to take away the so-called right to abortion on demand, even though it harms the unborn child, yet government is increasingly willing to take away the right to smoke, precisely because it harms innocent non-smokers, killing 3,000 of them a year by cancer and 40,000 a year by cardiac and other diseases. Isn't it remarkable that we are moving towards such remarkable control in removing rights to choose in some areas and we will not touch the right to choose that kills? If you say, Mr. President, and of course everything hangs on the fetus being a human child or not, are you willing to go before national television with this baby in your hand and hold it up to the camera in the Oval Room and explain to us why this is not a baby? Are you willing to unfold the legs so that we can see the exact length and hold it up and let the camera zoom in on the face and the eyes and the ears? Are you willing to even show it in the womb with the contemporary scientific truthful data we have about its life and the way it responds to being touched and the way it responds to sound and then explain to us why all of that is irrelevant to us and this baby can have his head chopped off, squished, his legs pulled off, and that is not a problem. 
Or worse, Mr. President, are you willing to come to Minneapolis and go to the hospital with me where this baby is being held in the arms of its mother after the miscarriage, look her in the eye and say, this is not now nor ever was it a child. Why are you crying? Perhaps, Mr. President, you have good answers for all of these, and we will honor you by expecting you to defend your position forthrightly in the public eye. You have immense power as President of the United States to wield it against the protection of the unborn without giving a public accounting we regard as a dishonorable thing to do, and therefore we expect better. And finally, Mr. President, number eight, we will honor you by trusting that the purpose of our sovereign and loving God to defend the fatherless and contend for the defenseless and exalt the meek will triumph through your presidency. And to that end, we're going to pray for you day by day. I hope that you will fill out sometime. All right, we're going to stop there. Now, as a Lutheran, I listened to that sermon, and you know, obviously, there's things that uh, you know I I would do differently, but that's not the point of this particular sermon review. This isn't really a review. Uh, the reason I play this is because I think it that uh, Piper speaks truth, and he understands that uh, for the sake of Christ, we honor our elected officials and the people that God has put in authority over us. And the the reason I really like this particular sermon in that sense is that he lays out ways in which we can honor someone like Barack Obama and why we should, as Christians, honor them. And notice it doesn't compromise right and wrong. It doesn't make us better hypocritically by saying that we're somehow not sinners and that everyone else is evil. No, it acknowledges that before Christ we are all evil, that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And for Christ's sake, we honor our elected officials. And uh, I think these eight points uh, that he gave definitely apply, even to somebody like Barack Obama, especially since they're both uh, Bill Clinton and Obama are on the same side here regarding the issue of abortion. Anyway, we've come to the end of our program today. I'd like to remind you that uh, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You can support us by going to fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on the Donate button, or you can uh, send a check to uh, Pirate Christian Radio, Post Office Box 791, SJC, California, zip code 92. Six nine three. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard in today's program, challenge something I've said biblically, all for it. Yeah, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. And until tomorrow, may God bless you. <laughs>